I'll read uh, once more Philippians chapter 1 and uh, just verses 9 to 11. That's what we want to look at this evening, where Paul says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in, the no in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I, uh, I did learn a little chorus when I was young. It began, Daniel was a man of prayer. Daily he prayed three times, even when they had him cast in the den of lions. Do you know it? You don't know that? It's, uh, you know, it's too good, that, isn't it? Now, <laughs> the... Uh, the thing is that when you think of Daniel, you think of a man of prayer. In the New Testament, you think of Paul, the Apostle Paul. standing example of a man of prayer in the New Testament. From the moment of his conversion to his final days when he was in prison, awaiting execution, his whole life was one of prayer to God. And in all Paul's letters, we, ones that we possess here in our New Testaments, for the churches, as well as for individual believers, uh, you will find are constantly references to his prayers for the people. And in this, of course, he follows the great example of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who spent Long periods in prayer to his Father in heaven. Now here in uh, this letter to the Philippians written from prison, Paul expresses thanks to God for the Christians at Philippi and he mentions how he is constantly in prayer for them. That's how he begins. But then in verses 9 to 11, the passage I've chosen for this evening, he actually tells them the content of his prayers for them. And of course, this is not the only place uh, where we have examples of the actual prayers that Paul offered on behalf of Christians. We must remember that these prayers of Paul are recorded as part of God's word to us, to help us in our prayer life, uh, uh, to instruct us in uh, what to pray for. Yes, we have the Psalms in the Old Testament, we have some uh, very uh, wonderful prayers in the Old Testament and other parts of the Old Testament, and yes, we have the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And uh, we have Jesus' own prayer for his disciples and the church of God throughout the ages. All very instructive and all of immense value to us. But God has also given us the prayers of the Apostle Paul to give us prompts and to inform us of the concerns that we ought to have in our spiritual lives as God's people. And here we are given specific 
prayer items. And we do well to take these items of prayer to our hearts. Paul was never at a loss what to pray for, and especially when praying for Christian brothers and sisters. And we can be sure that the things that he requested for them, he desired for himself. I wonder, do you, do you find it difficult to know what to pray for? Uh, I've heard many uh, come to the prayer meetings and say, don't pray, and, they, uh, and you, you find out, out uh, well, really we didn't know what to pray for. Well, take to heart the ideas that Paul has for believers in this passage, for instance, and make them your own. Now, the first, the first interesting thing that we notice about this prayer, and it's true of so many of Paul's prayers, it's a prayer for the spiritual well-being of these Christians at Philippi. He focuses on their growth as believers. And this is, this is very much a characteristic of, of Paul's prayers. And uh, again, I, I, I ask, what about ourselves? Is this true of your prayers for others, for people here in the church fellowship, for Christians in uh, other places of worship, in other gospel churches and throughout the world? You see, the kind of things we pray for ourselves and others is often a very good indication of our own spiritual condition. <coughs> so let me ask, do you, do you only pray for people when you know that they're in some kind of trouble? When they have an illness, for instance, or they've been involved in an accident or something. Now, of course, it's right and good to uphold people when they have physical and temporal needs or problems. Our Lord taught us to pray uh, in his prayer for us, uh, to us, uh, in, his, uh, in his example prayer. Uh, pray like this, he says. And he includes daily bread, daily bread. That's very physical, very necessary, everyday food. But uh, what comes across very, very clearly through reading all the prayers of the New Testament is how they concentrate so much on spiritual concerns. Isn't it interesting how the Apostle Paul, for instance, in all his prison letters, nowhere asks to be released from prison. In the same way, you read the, uh, the first uh, apostles there in Acts when they're, um, when they're just starting to be persecuted and uh, they're hauled before the Sanhedrin and told not to proclaim any more in the name of Jesus. Uh, they went back to their church. Uh, they didn't ask for the persecution to end, did they? But uh, what they asked for was boldness to continue to preach Jesus Christ despite the opposition. Now, in the light of all this, we yes, we can certainly pray for people's health, 
and for their material needs. But the New Testament's overriding concern and Paul's deep desire was for the church's spiritual health and for the spiritual life of individual believers. And again in this, he's following in the steps of, the Lord, of his Lord and Master who said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So for Paul, the spiritual welfare and condition of the Philippians was uppermost in his mind. Let me ask you, what are your, your chief concerns in your own prayer life? Are you more concerned about your job, your ambitions, your body, your house, your family, than about your spiritual well-being. If you're not uh, spiritually minded about your own life, you'll have little or no concern to pray for the spiritual state of others. Are you giving priority to the externals of life or to your spiritual growth? If you're concerned about your own relationship to God, then you will not be lost for words, I tell you. You'll not be lost for words when you are praying for others. So let's, so let's come to these verses. Here in these verses, we, we have the Apostle Paul who tells us later that he himself wants to know the Lord Jesus Christ more and more and the power of his resurrection and the fellow to, to share in his sufferings. Here he is praying for the spiritual life of these Philippian believers. And he doesn't deal in generalities, does he? He is very specific. He has a list. He has a list of things. But you notice also that his prayer has the glory of God in mind all the time. The paragraph that begins with Paul thanking God for the Christians at Philippi closes here in verse 11 with a desire to praise God. That ending to his prayer is no add-on for effect or because it's the done thing as a kind of thoughtless mantra to the glory and praise of God. Not at all. The glory of God dominated Paul's whole life as a Christian. And he constantly formulates his own doxologies, such as you get later on here in uh, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 20, comes towards the end of the whole letter and he says, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Are we eager to give God his rightful place in our lives and to worship only him? I was really touched during the Olympic Games. It was rather moving and refreshing to hear the Fijian rugby team at the Olympics 
singing a hymn of praise to God after their success. Well, they didn't have to do it, did they? But they did. That was so nice to hear that. They weren't ashamed to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. John Sebastian Bach, uh, the great Lutheran composer of the early 18th century, he always ends his musical scores with the Latin abbreviation S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory. And this prayer that Paul expresses of his concern for these Philippian friends is that their lives might be of such a kind as to magnify and radiate the greatness of God from whom and through whom and to whom are all things and to praise and honour this God in the way that he indeed deserves. Ah, your interests earthbound and selfish? Are your prayers self-centred or God-centred? Are you concerned for your own good name or just the good name of this chapel or are you concerned for God's honour? Our prayers will be the stronger for having this God-centred attitude at all times. Well then, what is Paul's prayer for the church at Philippi? You will notice quite a build-up of words in his request to God on their behalf, but there is one basic fundamental petition, and all the items mentioned are geared to this one point. The prayer is for an increase in holiness or growth in Christian living. Now, do you rank holiness high in your thinking and praying? Well, we ought to if uh, we are Christians. It's made very clear throughout the New Testament that we are called to holiness. We are saved to live holy lives, and without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If you have your eye on the great Christian hope which is mentioned here in verse 10, the day of Christ, then you will be concerned about holiness. The day of Christ is the day when he will appear in glory to judge the living and the dead, and to wind up this old age and to bring in the new creation. And John, in his first letter, states that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. And it follows that if we uh, are concerned to lead a holy life, we will pray about it, and we will act accordingly. And if we are concerned about our fellow believers, we shall be praying that they too will grow in holiness so that we might be ready for the Lord when he returns in glory. By the way, I must add this, Paul is not proclaiming of works salvation. He's not saying that if we try to live a holy life, we shall, we shall be accepted on the day when Jesus Christ appears on that great day of judgment. He makes it very clear 
in chapter 3 of this very letter that we are not saved by what we do. It is not our own righteousness that puts us right with God. Paul considers himself, all his law-keeping, and indeed he was a good Pharisee before his conversion. Paul considers all his law-keeping and status in the Jewish religion as rubbish compared with knowing Christ. We are accepted by God through his Son, Jesus the Messiah. He is the righteous one. We need to be found in him. We cannot be true Christians if we are not found in Jesus Christ. Not having a righteousness of our own, not looking to our own good deeds and works, but looking to Jesus and his righteousness. Has God begun this good work in you? I do trust so this evening. This good work, we can't go on if we haven't begun. So it's very important that we begin right. Our standing before God is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if that is true of you tonight, then you've been given new life by God. And so he calls you now. He calls you to live a holy life. As Christians, we are called to do the good works that God has given us to do. Paul has thanked God that the original good work of salvation has begun in the, the lives of these Philippian Christians. You know some of them. We read about them in the book of Acts, don't we? People like the Philippian jailer and his family, and Lydia, the seller of purple, they have trusted the Lord, Jesus Christ, for salvation. And Paul is confident, he says here, that uh, what God has begun in their lives, he will bring to completion when Jesus appears in glory at his second coming. But the fact that God finishes what he starts doesn't mean we just sit back and let God get on with it in our lives. There used to be a, a teaching around when I was young. I used to hear it sometimes, especially from one fellow. He had a farm just outside Wrexham, good uh, uh, strawberry farm. You went there and pick your own strawberries, you know, and all that sort of thing. Very nice. But he was, a, he was a good, good, godly Christian man, but he had this view, you see. Let go and let God. Let go and let God. No, that is not the biblical view. We're accepted uh, by God through Jesus Christ, and he has begun a good work in us. And, uh, but he calls us, you see, to work out what God has put in him. Uh, work out your salvation, says Paul here in this letter. Work out your salvation with fear and tremble, for God is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So, God who has worked salvation in our lives calls us to work that salvation out from day to day, week by week, month by month, year by year after year. 
Yeah, there is something, there's something very mysterious about all this. In, in some respects, everything about the Christian faith is mysterious. We can't, we can't sort of put it all together neatly and, uh, and we can't all oh, systematize it in every detail. There's a mystery about the Christian message. Every aspect of it leads you where you're lost. You can't, you can't work it all out in, in detail, so to speak. But, but uh, the thing to remember is, you see, uh, God is at work in us to do his will, and we're urged to do it, aren't we? But we can only do it because God initiates the work and enables us to do it. And now, you see, we are being told here that our prayers for ourselves and for one another are also used in God's plans and purposes to the self-same end that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So Paul prays for these Christian brothers and sisters in Philippi that God would enable them to grow in holiness. And hol the holiness that Paul has in mind is ethical in nature. It's not ritualistic. You don't have to bow and scrape uh, in front of the pulpit here or something. No, you don't have to do that. Uh, it's not religious in that sense, but it's down-to-earth, Christ-like living to the glory of God and the benefit of others. That's the holiness that the Bible is interested in. And uh, here in this passage, two adjectives express the two aspects of Christian holiness. They concern our inner selves and our outer behavior. The first word we've got here is sincere or pure. It's only, this, this word only occurs twice in the, uh, uh, the Greek of the New Testament. It's here and in uh, 2 Peter. Uh, to stir up your pure hearts, uh, sincere hearts. And it, it speaks of this inner purity of motive. Only God knows our motives, of course. And many times Paul has to leave it to God to judge him when others criticize him and pull him apart. The other adjective, without offense or blameless. Now that can mean not causing others to stumble as well as not stumbling ourselves. So... I think it, we can include both. This, of course, can be judged by others. A sincere heart, a pure heart can't. Only God knows the sincerity of our hearts, really. But others can see whether we are without offense, whether there is a blamelessness about our character. We should endeavor to lead a life before the watching world that gives no cause of offense. Have you ever thought of that? You know, Job behaved like this in the Old Testament. He was a man who feared God, eschewed evil, and he was, we are told, this 
completeness about his character, a perfection about his character. Abram was urged by God, walk before me and be blameless. Be, have this, this, uh, before the watching world, no obvious uh, fault. Now that's a tall order, isn't it? But that's our calling as Christians. Now, of course, such fruits of righteousness can only come as we abide in Jesus Christ. Without Christ, we can do nothing. So that's why we're told by our Lord himself, abide in Christ, depend on him, so we shall bear much fruit. And Paul is praying for their spiritual growth as believers. And that is an encouragement for us to pray for one another. We know our own hearts. We know how much we are encouraged by the prayers of others. Well, you remember that. And so pray yourself for others along these same lines. And to that end, we have these other elements brought in. Paul sees love as extremely important in the Christian's life. He doesn't mention any object to this love. And so we don't need to get bogged down asking whether this is love toward God or whether it's love towards non-Christians or whether it's love towards believers. It's all love. We are to love. Love God means loving our fellow believers. It means loving the lost as the Lord loves the lost. This is a wonderful fruit of the Spirit, as you know, this this love, the fruit of the Spirit begins with this love. This love is to fill our whole beings. It's to be behind our every action, our every attitude. Again, we see it in the Apostle Paul himself, don't we? In his longing for them with the affection of Jesus Christ, as he puts it there in verse 8. He's got this love for them. Uh, and you see it in other Christians that he mentions here in this, uh, in this letter. Timothy and uh, uh, Epaphroditus. There they've got this great love. Because they've got a love for God and Jesus Christ. They've got a love for their fellow believers. It's only as we know more and more of the love of God and the love of Christ in our hearts that we shall be filled with love for others. Love for Christ should also constrain us to be concerned for the lost. Love of Christ should bind Christians together more closely as a fellowship and should encourage us to seek the fellowship of others who also love the Lord in truth and sincerity. It's Christ's love in our hearts that should move us to obey the Lord and to serve him with all our beings. Yes, it's a tall order. This is what we are called to as believers, as Christians. Have you got this love in you? You desire this yourself? You pray to God that he might encourage you to love more, love fellow believers more, Oh, dear me, there's so much trouble and so much bickering and so much strife and 
and warring amongst believers, and it's sad and it's wrong. Wrong. People put on a, a, a veneer of uh, saying, oh, well, it's a doctrinal issue. It's not anything like it. Most of our troubles, personality clashes. We've got to get on with one another. And that means we've got to be concerned for one another and pray for one another and realize that that other person is not very much unlike you and me. We can all be a bit grumpy and a bit irritable and uh, we can all have our... Have our uh, uh, little bit disputes, can't we? So we've got to get on. Get on more. One with the other. Love. But of course, Paul is not interested in a sloppy, undisciplined love that we uh, sadly uh, hear of from day to day. This love is to be controlled by knowledge, he says, and discernment. Much talk of love in the context of uh, denominational church unity and all that, extols love without knowledge and sense. Love is, is, is not to be made into a god. Uh, some people do that. And, and in the context of unity amongst churches and professing Christians, love must not blind us to error and to uh, false beliefs. Love must never be pitted against truth. There is even more concern today of uh, this desire that we should embrace all, all religions under the great umbrella of love. One religion, different faiths, one religion. That's what they say. No, knowledge is important, truth is important. Unity in the truth of God's word, that should concern us. And there can be no Christian life at all without the knowledge of the saving truths. Faith comes by hearing the good word of God. And there can be no growth in Christian life without the knowledge of saving truth. It's by receiving more and more of God's word that we grow. Just as a baby grows, First by milk and then by solid. So Peter in his first letter tells us that, doesn't he? First of all, you have the milk of God's word. And then you go on deeper to get to know more of God's word and to build yourself up in the most holy faith. But we also need discernment. We need uh, judgment to apply the, the knowledge that we receive. A lot of people have got a head full of knowledge and they don't know how to use it, do they? <laughs> it's uh, completely unwise in the way they, they act with their, the knowledge they have. No, we need wisdom to work out the knowledge of God's word in our day-to-day -day lives. And again, as James reminds us in his letter, we can apply to God for this. Heavenly sense, heavenly wisdom. So then, a genuine knowledge, discerning love, will enable us to test and approve what is best, what is most important. It will enable us to discern what is valuable and what will lead to holiness of life.
Uh, I mean, he puts it later on, doesn't he? You see, whatever is, uh, uh, what, what is it? Now, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Things that the Philippians have learnt from the Apostle Paul, which are now recorded for us in the pages of the New Testament. Yes, you can't lead a holy life if you're walking in darkness, if you're not following the truths of God's word. Yeah, we're living in confusing days, aren't we? And when worldly opinion is so different from God's truth, and uh, from his way for our lives as human beings. Everything has been turned upside down. Christian morality has been turned on his head. And we're supposed to go along with the, with the public opinion, with the media uh, opinions. Well, we need sense. We need discernment to have a love that does not compromise the truth truth of what we believe, the truth of how we should live. Yes, that discernment must come with love. Uh, there must be that caring concern for others. There must be that winsomeness in our whole living. We're not to be for the watching word be people who uh, nasty to get on with. No. Perhaps it all seems overwhelming now as we think, think of all these, all these things. It seems overwhelming. It seems impossible, doesn't it, what I've been trying to express here from God's Word. And, and we could easily fall back and despair. Oh, this is too much for us. Too big for us. Especially in these days in which we live when all things seem to be against us and against the Christian truth, against the Christian way of life. And uh, when, especially when Christians are falling out amongst themselves as well. Oh. But that's why we need to pray for one another and encourage one another by our prayers and our Christian living. We need one another. God has given us one another. We're not meant to be on our own. Otherwise, he would have placed us in the desert somewhere. No, we are meant to be together. And uh, why are we to be together? Because we can encourage one another together. We're to pray for one another together. And if they're not there, we are concerned that they're not in their regular pew. And we're concerned uh, that, they're, uh, that something's wrong. And we pray for them. And we get to know why. And we pray for them. And we tell them we are concerned for them and we carry on praying for them. You know, it's encouraging to know, as we are told here, God is at work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What he has begun, he will complete. That's what God has said. So we hold him to that. That's encouraging for every one of us to know. And it is through Jesus Christ, our sufficiency, that we shall progress and uh, be full of the fruits of righteousness.
He died, he rose again to save us and to keep us through to the day of his appearing in glory. So, dear friends, with this word before us, this prayer of the apostles Paul's before us, make it your own. Press on uh, to the honour and praise of God's holy name. Keep one another in your prayers so you will grow together, so you will be a blessing to others, and so the work will go on and progress. And uh, I look forward, if God gives me strength and keeps me here, to, to hear of you in the future, uh, going on and pressing on for the glory of God and the extension of his great kingdom. May God bless you all. In Jesus' name, amen.